I did not come here from overseas tonight just to be here, in case that was misunderstood. We moved to the country two months ago, and we're really, really excited to be here in Australia. It's been an amazing start to our life here, and a big, um, lots of credit goes to Grace City Church for that. So, yeah. Um, we used to live in Dubai. We lived there for 11 years. And one of the things about living in Dubai is there's this phrase. Some of you might be familiar with it. It goes, it says, inshallah. And the literal meaning of that is uh, the, Muslim, the Muslim culture, um, they say, if God wills it. And they're talking about their God, Allah. But it's, it's not so much a religious phrase anymore. It's more of a colloquial phrase that's just used in the culture. And it's used in many contexts, in business contexts. If you're trying to get some work done or trying to wait for a project, and you say, when will this be done? And they're like, tomorrow, inshallah. It's a, a way of saying maybe, or perhaps, or in time, and there's no response you can give to that. You can't, you can't say, oh, because it's if God wills it. So what do you say to that? And it was really frustrating to start, start us off in Dubai when we learned this phrase and we had to deal with it. But actually, it really prepared me for my marriage, because Tom <laughs> has his own version of Inshallah. So I don't know if any of you wives can relate, but sometimes there's things to do and you expect your husbands to maybe get some stuff done around the house. Once in a while, there might be a list. And you say, <laughs> and you say to them, can you please get this done? And Tom's response is always, yes, maybe at some point. And I'm like, oh, and all I want is the commitment of when it will be done. And all he wants is to not give me that commitment because then he'll have to be held to it. <laughs> And I'm just really, really grateful that we don't have a God who works like that. I'm grateful that if we come to God and he says he will do something, he will do it. We might not know the when and we might not know the how, but we know we're coming to a God who is faithful. And that's what I want to speak to us um, about tonight. I, um, I want to look at mostly the, pas uh, the passage in Joshua chapter 6. So we're going to have... Um, just the scriptures that I'm referring to pop up uh, on the screen, and other than that, I'm just going to go through it, so bear with me. Follow along if you can, read along, but we're mostly going to be in Joshua chapter 6. It's the story of Joshua and the wall of Jericho, but also we're going to dip into a little bit before that and a little bit after that. So, waiting on God when he has spoken to us, and how do we wait in that season? Looking at the passage in Joshua, um, there is so much here that I believe God is doing in the people and through the people that we could so easily miss. And just like our own situations that we go through, I believe there is so much that God is doing in us and through us that we could so very easily miss. So just to give you a little bit of a backstory of what's happening. So the Israelites who've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, They've been wandering around, going through um, desire to be back in Egypt where they were held in captivity because they're not seeing what they want to see. And God is trying to bring them to a place of trust in him because he has promised them this land flowing with milk and honey. So they're on the edge. They're at, they can see the promised land ahead of them. And in the, in the, in the promised land is the city Jericho. And they've got here, and all they can see are these high walls, because the people in Jericho have built their walls, and they've closed the gates, and they are not letting anyone in or out, because they are responding in fear. And there's probably doubt from the Israelites, there's probably fear, there's probably discouragement, they're probably thinking, 
We've come all this way. We have wandered for 40 years. Here we were at the entrance to the promised land. Are we really going to get in? Is this really going to happen? So let's look at chapter 1 at the beginning, what God says to Jericho. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. This is the point at which Joshua was given a choice to trust. These are the words of God, the Lord Most High, speaking to him. And he's making him a promise here. He's not saying it might happen. And he's not even saying, I'm going to do it. He's saying, I have done it. So he is letting Joshua know that it's already happened, and Joshua needs to put his faith in something that is yet to come, but has already happened. The fulfillment of it is certain. There is, these are the words of God that can either build faith in us, or they might not if we choose not to trust him. There are also other words that can either build tr trust or build fear, and these are our words. I want us to look at a passage in Numbers chapter 13. So this is looking back now. This is when Moses was the leader of the Israelites. And Moses sent some spies into the land. He, um, God asked him to send 12 men of Israel to go and check out the land, check the fruit, check what the people are like, and bring a report back. So they came back, these 12 men, and 10 of them gave this report. In Numbers 13, verse 27 and 28, this is what it says. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. They brought some fruit back. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. These were the words spoken by the people over their situation based on what they could see. They could see the fruit and they could see the land and they saw it was good. But they could also see the men who were powerful and they could see the fortified city and they forgot the promise that God had given them because they were going by what they could see. Later on in that, um, the next chapter, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it says, That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Words can either bind us up or set us free. You know, a few months ago, five or six months ago, we were um, in London and we had applied for this visa to come to Australia. And it was about two or three months after we'd applied. And honestly, Tom and I were at the point of thinking, we thought we would have got the visa by now. What is going on? And we were in that phase of really praying and like, oh, Lord, are you going to bring this visa to us? And when we had conversations with people, when people would say to me, so have you heard any news or what's your plan? We would say, well, we've applied for these visas to, to Australia. And if they come through, we will go. But I was using this word if as a safety net. I was, I was protecting myself because it might not come through. And one night God challenged me and I felt him say to me, 
it is done. And I felt that so clearly because I was praying specifically about the visa and I, I didn't have it, we hadn't got it yet, but he said to me, it is done. And just like Joshua had to believe in something that had yet to happen, I had to believe that it was done without seeing it yet. But in my language, I continue to say to people, I believed and I shared with Tom, yeah, you know, I, th I really think, you know, I feel God said this to me, it's done. But I carried on saying to other people, if it comes through, and God really challenged me, said, why are you saying that if I've told you it's done? And that changed the way I viewed my situation. The words that I spoke to myself and to others changed how I viewed the situation that I was in. It changed how I waited on God. So what words are we speaking over our situations? What are we saying to ourselves and to others around us? As believers, we have a choice to look to our circumstances. And let's be honest, sometimes our circumstances are really bleak and dire. Sometimes we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can't see the hope. But do you know what? Trust is most crucial when we can't see what lies ahead. Trust is most crucial when we don't know how God's word is going to be fulfilled. The Israelites were not wandering in the desert for 40 years because God wasn't able to bring them in or because the land wasn't ready. It was because they doubted God. So do we trust when we can't see? Next, let's look at what God asked them to do. So he's told Joshua what's going to happen. In verse 3 of Joshua chapter 2, this is what it, sorry, Joshua chapter 6, this is what it says. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. So God is laying out what will happen. For those of you who are not familiar with this story, it might sound a little bit strange to you, but honestly, I'm familiar with the story and it still, still sounds really strange to me. This is a very unconventional way of doing things. If this was me, I would probably say, God, really? Like, is this a metaphor for something you actually want us to do? Because how is this gonna do anything? But the trust that we just talked about has to be worked out in obedience. Remember these Israelites that, they, the one that wandered in the desert? They doubted, but they didn't just doubt. They also complained, and they also worshipped other gods. They're, they looked back on captivity in Egypt and longed for it, all because of their lack of trust and obedience. What God was asking them to do was too much for them and not worth it, it seemed to them. Now, these same Israelites, God was asking them to do something strange, something potentially embarrassing. Imagine being the people watching them. Imagine seeing a situation like that now outside. If I was in it, I'd be like, oh, this is really awkward. If I was on the outside, I'd be like, weirdos. You know, so either way, it's a really weird situation. But their act of obedience would show God the position of their heart. Now, it doesn't say in this passage that they came up with something else, but knowing their history and knowing what had happened before, I, this is just my thinking, I don't think it would have been too strange for them to have sort of discussed amongst themselves, shall we just, just in case, come up with a backup plan? 
Should we just have some people armed and ready, maybe aiming at the walls, something, just in case this doesn't work? As I was preparing for this a couple of weeks ago, um, a phrase dropped into my mind that I feel God wanted to say to some people tonight, and that is, no plan B. I feel God wants to say to you, to us, no plan B. If he has spoken to you about something clearly, don't come up with a plan B. The Israelites, quite early on, after experiencing God's power and hearing of his promise of an amazing future, they built a golden calf to worship when God didn't act in the way that they wanted him to. Don't say you will trust him only to be formulating a backup plan in your mind or thinking up an alternative way to make a decision if he doesn't act in the way that you expect him to. If God has spoken to you, then let his plan, let plan A be your only plan. You know the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket? It's a really popular saying for people who on a road to success, mentees, mentors usually speak to their successors and they say, you know, if you're going to apply for a job, don't just apply to one job. And the literal meaning is if you have a bunch of eggs and you put them all in one basket and you drop that basket, every egg will crack. But if you spread those eggs out into different baskets and you drop one, phew, you still have all the other eggs that are in the other baskets. But my advice to you today is if God is your basket and he's spoken, put all your eggs in that basket. Psalm, 34, Psalm 37, verse 34 says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. The thing about not having a backup plan is that it calls us to give up control. And in, in all honesty, that's a really hard thing to do. Not just to say the words, we can sing songs about surrendering all, but to actually relinquish all control to God is hard. We all are, at some point, have been in control of some part of our lives, and we probably are still holding on to areas of our lives that we're afraid to surrender. I've been doing a study with um, our ladies group, uh, and our life group on Wednesday nights, by uh, a woman, an American Bible teacher called Jenny Allen. And one of the things she says in her book is, the more we understand our position with Christ, in Christ, and through Christ, the less we try hard and the more we surrender. You know, and that's all well and good to hear, but what does that look like? And I love how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is what he says about his, his identity, his position with Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. So it is no longer I, Tish, who lives and walks this earth. Sure, I'm a bit older than I was. I'm just as short as always. But as Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is the how. How do we live? By faith in the Son of God. And we do that because he loved us and he died for us. And it's that understanding, that knowledge of what he's done for us that brings us to a place of complete surrender. How do we remain in that place of surrender? Because we, we might have got there and we're thinking, gosh, okay, I can do this. 
and then something comes, temptation or fear or an outside thought seeps in and we just want to cling to something. How do we stay in that place? Let's look further in the passage in Joshua 6, verses 12 and 13. This is now the Israelites. Uh, Joshua's telling them what to do. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. I love this picture of the trumpets blowing continually. There was no other sound being made. No talking, no whispering, no complaining. Joshua had, had, had commanded the people to be completely silent until they were asked to shout. So there was this continual blowing of the ram's horns, and this was an act of worship, the only sound that was being heard. And in the times that we are waiting on God, it is really important for the loudest sound in our lives to be that of worship. Now, I don't mean to have worship music playing in your car or your house. That's great. Have that. But what I'm talking about is having our minds and our hearts focused on who he is. Proclaiming praise and declaring who he is, it changes our stance of how we see our situation. In Isaiah 46, God says, I am he who sustains you. What a promise. But our job is to look to him for that sustenance. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 121, he says, um, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. It's in our stance of worship that he sustains our heart of surrender and brings us peace. So we're going to go back a little bit to chapter 5 of Joshua. Why was Joshua so willing to follow God? At the end of chapter 5, Joshua had an encounter with God himself. Um, and when he appeared, so following God is less about actually following him, and it's more about knowing him. This is the why to following him. And Mike was talking about it earlier at the end of worship. He talked about knowing this God. Now, most of you here probably know Dean and Ruby. And, uh, Ruby, uh, sorry, Dean and <laughs> Robin. <laughs> but Robin would say that there's another woman in Dean's life, and that's Ruby, sorry. The stories about Dean and Ruby, that's why. <laughs> Robin would say, Robin, when, when I first uh, met her, she told me that Dean has another woman in his life, and that's Ruby. Ruby is their dog, okay? <laughs> Ruby is just gorgeous, and Ruby follows Dean everywhere. She is so aware of Dean's movements. Her ears prick up when, when Dean takes a step, and she's checking which direction he's going in. And it's not because Dean is dangling some treats or meat or, or like forcing Ruby to follow him. It's, it's because Ruby knows him and Ruby loves him and Ruby follows him. It's this relationship of trust and knowing. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. But actually, Robin is Dean's first love. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Right from the beginning of Joshua's leadership of the Israelites, he has known God was with him. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And that truth, that knowledge that Joshua had, kept him in that place of being able to follow and obey and trust. We are willing to follow God because we know him. And it's through that knowledge that trust is built and through that trust that obedience flows. So let's just look at what it says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you on our side or our enemy's side? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? You know, sometimes we, we think of God as being on our side as opposed to another side. But actually, I think we've got a, a bit amiss there. It's not about God being on our side. It's a question of, are we on his side? Are we on God's side? He has a plan. We got to get on board with that. Joshua's response to this was, what does my Lord say to his servant? And in that moment, Joshua puts God in his rightful place of lordship. And he recognizes himself humbly as a servant and asks, what do you say? That was the stance of worship that Joshua was placing himself in. That stance of worship that sustains him. So by following God's lead, eventually Joshua found out that this whole scenario, this whole strange, weird situation was not one of force and power and military strategy, but it was one where God was going to reveal himself to the Israelites and to those around who were watching in a glorious way. And in and amongst this big picture, there was... There was a smaller story happening, but not insignificant at all. We're just going to pop back to Joshua chapter 2 and meet Rahab. Uh, you might be familiar with Rahab. Rahab was um, living in Jericho, and she was a prostitute, and she was living on the walls of the city of Jericho. Um, when Joshua, Joshua sent two spies in, and this was to Jericho, this is later, this is the second time spies were sent into the land. He said, go into the land and find out what it's like, and particularly Jericho, find out what they're like and what the people are like. And they, they went to Rahab's house, these two spies. Now, in the meantime, the king of Jericho found out that Rahab was hiding, had, these spies had come to her house, so he sent men to go get them, to get these spies, and he was probably going to kill them. But Rahab hid them in her roof. That was her response. And she had a very interesting conversation with these spies from Israel. This is what it says in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, listen to this, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That, that's some faith. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then she goes on to ask those two spies, will you save me when Jericho is taken down? Will you save me and my family? Rahab was an outsider looking in. She was watching. She was hearing these stories of God, of Israel, and everyone in Jericho had responded in this fear. They'd locked themselves up. They could see this, this God who could do amazing things for his people, and their response was fear. And I'm sure Rahab also feared him, but her response was belief. Her response was to get on God's side. Sure, she feared this God too. He was powerful and able to do things she's never seen before. But her response was to join camp, get in on the action, because she knew that she would be there on his side rather than anywhere else. Everything we go through in our lives, every trial, every waiting period, every difficulty, it's beyond just being about us. God shows himself to us, but he also shows himself to others around us through what we go through. Everyone who's praying, everyone who hears your story, everyone who comes across you when you're going through something, God is showing himself to them as well. So like I said, this wasn't a battle with military force and proven strategy, but it was a battle with obedience, worship, and devotion. God asks us to join his side. He calls us to walk a walk of trust, obedience, and surrender as he acts in his way and in his time. 